Picture this, if you will. You're an orthopedic surgeon called to the surgical unit to see a 68-year-old female, four days status post open reduction and internal fixation for a complicated left intertrochanteric fracture. In layman's terms, she broke her hip. When you arrive, the nurse informs you that your patient has had new onset of chest pain and shortness of breath. Vitals reveal a pulse of 120 beats per minute, blood pressure of 100 over 70 millimeters mercury, respiratory rate of 30 per minute, and pulse ox of 92%. On exam, the patient's lungs are clear to auscultation, though she appears to be in moderate respiratory distress. Her left lower extremity is somewhat edematous, as it has been over the past few days, but it seemed fairly consistent with normal postoperative swelling. What do you suspect has happened to your patient, and what interventions do you need to perform? And welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from pulmonology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this brick, you'll be able to 1. Define pulmonary embolism, otherwise known as PE, and identify which patients are at risk. 2. Identify the common symptoms of PE. 3. Describe the pathophysiology of how a PE leads to complications like hypoxemia and right ventricular failure. 4. Explain how a PE is diagnosed and list the criteria that establish the type of workup that's indicated. And 5. Outline the treatment strategies for patients with PE. Part 1. What is a pulmonary embolism? A pulmonary embolism, or PE, is an obstruction within the pulmonary arteries, usually due to a large blood clot that forms elsewhere in the body and then travels to the lung. When a substance travels through the arterial circulation until it includes an artery, causing ischemia to the downstream tissue, the phenomenon is known as embolization, hence pulmonary embolism. With PEs, the thrombus most commonly forms in the deep veins of the lower extremities, where they're known as DVTs, though other venous thrombi can also lead to PEs. Now, the incidence of PE is about 100 in 100,000, or 0.1%. The risk increases with age, as well as with certain conditions that predispose patients to thrombus formation, like cancer, thrombotic disorders, and use of some drugs. It may not seem like such a high incidence, but in the United States, between 60 and 100,000 people die each year from PEs. One-third of survivors will have another occurrence within the next 10 years. And as an emergency physician, pulmonary embolism is one of the most important must-not-miss causes of chest pain and dyspnea, second to only acute coronary syndrome, and identifying these patients is of utmost importance. To review, where do pulmonary emboli originate? The majority of pulmonary embolisms originate in the deep veins of the lower extremities. Part 2. How does a patient with a pulmonary embolism present clinically? Pulmonary embolisms present with a wide range of symptoms and symptom severity. The most common symptoms are dyspnea and chest pain, specifically sharp chest pain that's exacerbated by breathing, known as pleuritic chest pain. These symptoms are seen in more than 60% of patients, which unfortunately is still not great as far as sensitivity is concerned. Patients may also present with cough, orthopnea, wheezing, or hemoptysis, and the telltale sign that clues you into the presence of a PE may be unilateral lower leg pain or edema from the DVT that the embolus originates from. 
The chest pain, dyspnea, etc., are typically caused by focal ischemia or infarction when a pulmonary embolus mostly or completely occludes a segmental branch of the lung. These must be recognized and treated, especially since it means that the patient has more thrombus in their legs that could break off at any moment. But the real emergency occurs when patients present with signs of right ventricular failure. Dyspnea, syncope, presyncope, tachycardia, or even shock leading to cardiac arrest. These tend to occur when large emboli occlude very proximal portions of the pulmonary arterial circulation. Because the occlusion is almost always partial in these cases, these patients often have little or no chest pain. On top of that, pulmonary emboli may be asymptomatic, or the patients may have severe dementia and not be able to articulate their symptoms. In these cases, you're at a huge disadvantage and have to rely on the clinical signs of DVT and PE. Quick knowledge check, guys. What are the two most common symptoms seen in patients with acute pulmonary emboli? Dyspnea and pleuritic chest pain are the two most common symptoms seen in patients with acute pulmonary emboli. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of a pulmonary embolism? Like I already mentioned, pulmonary emboli most commonly break off of deep venous thromboses in the lower extremities, in the popliteal, femoral, or iliac veins. And if you know about what predisposes someone to DVTs, then you know what predisposes them to PEs. So tell me, what are the three main physiologic abnormalities that lead to DVTs? Sluggish flow in the veins, damage to the venous endothelium, and increased coagulability. Virchow's triad, baby. Same as for DVTs. Venous blood flow becomes sluggish when a patient is immobile for a long time, since activity of the leg muscles helps push blood forward from the lower extremities. Prolonged travel is a risk factor, hospitalization even more so, and major surgery is a very significant risk factor. A hypercoagulable state can be induced by a number of things, most importantly cancer. But in otherwise healthy patients, elevated estrogen levels are the most important cause of hypercoagulability. Pregnancy, oral contraceptives, and hormonal supplements administered during menopause are all clinically important causes of hypercoagulability. Finally, the venous endothelium can be injured by surgery, trauma, venous catheterization, and vasculitis. A minority of patients experience upper extremity thromboses, and in otherwise healthy patients, this is usually caused by venous access procedures, like central lines, pick lines, and pacemakers. However, patients with hypercoagulable disorders, like factor V Leiden, can get DVTs in both the upper and lower extremities, even without venous procedures. PEs can occur as a result of non-thrombotic emboli, but just remember that this is a pretty rare phenomenon. Long bone fractures can lead to fat emboli. Rapid underwater ascent can lead to air emboli. Right heart endocarditis can lead to septic emboli. Certain cancers can lead to tumor emboli. And obstetric complications can lead to peripartum amniotic fluid emboli. Now, don't get me wrong. These are all potentially life-threatening illnesses, but the circumstances leading to those types of emboli and even their clinical presentation are totally different from acute pulmonary emboli secondary to venous thromboses. We cover those in another brick, so for the rest of this podcast, everything I'm going to talk about will center around PEs secondary to DVTs. Now, quick review before we move on. What predisposes a patient to DVTs? Virchow's triad, immobility, hypercoagulability, 
and venous endothelial damage. So, I alluded to this earlier, but the effect of a pulmonary embolus and the symptoms it causes are related to the degree of occlusion and the size of the clot. A pulmonary embolus that completely or near-completely occludes an arterial branch will lead to ischemia or infarction distal to the occlusion, which, like in other instances of ischemia, causes pain. Even though the lungs have visceral sensation, pulmonary ischemia and infarction cause irritation of the adjacent pleura, leading to the sharp, pleuritic nature of the chest pain that's exacerbated by breathing. The irritation also causes the subjective sensation of dyspnea, but here's where things get a little more complicated. Now, in the ideal world, people breathe at a rate and depth that's sufficient to replenish the oxygen in the alveoli as fast as blood from the systemic circulation sucks it up. But you also need to breathe fast and deep enough to get rid of carbon dioxide as fast as the stanky old blood dumps it into the alveoli. It's not a perfect system. Because of gravity, the upper portions of the lungs get more airflow to the alveoli than there is blood to make use of it. And at the lower portions of the lungs, it's the opposite. That's called a mismatch in ventilation and perfusion. Unfortunately, though, you have only one respiratory rate that controls airflow to all alveoli, so your lungs just try to accommodate to the average airflow needs of your lungs. Now, when a pulmonary embolus obstructs flow to a branch of the pulmonary artery, blood flow to those alveoli decreases. So oxygen is being replenished, but not enough blood flows past the alveoli to make good use of it. It's a phenomenon known as dead space ventilation. This exacerbates the mismatch between ventilation and perfusion, since suddenly, now all that blood that can't pass by the embolus has to try to flow more rapidly through the other parts of the lung. And the body compensates for the increased perfusion to the healthy portions of the lung by trying to increase the ventilation. The patient starts to feel dyspneic and responds by breathing faster and more deeply. But if the blood flow is restricted to a large enough portion of the lungs, the patient's hyperventilation won't be able to compensate for that long, and the patient will become hypoxemic. Try it yourself. Hyperventilating is hard work. Actually, never mind. I don't want anyone passing out. Now, it's interesting to note that oxygen has a much harder time diffusing from the alveoli into the aqueous bloodstream than carbon dioxide does. That's why we invented hemoglobin and red blood cells to carry it, because oxygen basically sucks at dissolving in water. Carbon dioxide has a much easier time, especially since it reacts to form the water-soluble bicarbonate in the alveoli. So, even though oxygen diffusion has a very hard time keeping up with the increased perfusion to the healthy portions of the lung, carbon dioxide diffusion has a much easier time. So, the hyperventilation caused by PEs tends to cause hypocarbia and respiratory alkalosis. If a patient with a PE develops respiratory acidosis, well, that's a really ominous sign. It suggests that not only is blood flow restricted to a very large portion of the lung, but that they're also starting to experience respiratory fatigue and can't keep hyperventilating as much as their body needs. Quick review. Why do patients with PEs develop hypoxemia? Hypoxemia results from increased dead space ventilation that causes a mismatch between ventilation and perfusion. Now, VQ mismatch and hypoxemia are pretty bad, but the really life-threatening thing about PEs is their ability to cause right heart failure. Obstruction of the pulmonary arteries causes the overall resistance in the pulmonary circulation to increase, since now blood has to pass through a smaller total cross-sectional area to reach the left heart. And unlike the systemic circulation, the pulmonary circulation is normally a very low-pressure system, 
so the right heart doesn't have to be very muscular to move blood effectively under normal circumstances. Unfortunately, this means that the right heart isn't well equipped to work against the acutely increased resistance caused by a large pulmonary embolism. The right ventricular and right atrial pressures increase acutely, causing dilation of both chambers. And when the chambers dilate, it causes distortion of the tricuspid valve and prevents it from closing completely, exacerbating the right heart failure with tricuspid regurgitation. When a pulmonary embolism causes right heart strain, it's referred to as a submassive pulmonary embolism. And at this point, patients will present with signs like jugular venous distension. If the PE presents more chronically, they may develop things like hepatomegaly, ascites, and peripheral edema. Because the right heart is relatively weak and ineffective at pushing blood past an obstruction, the preload to the left heart decreases. Initially, the left heart tries to compensate for the decreased preload by increasing the contractility and heart rate, which is why the first sign of an acute PE is often tachycardia. But at the point where the left heart can no longer compensate for the decreased preload, the cardiac output to the systemic circulation decreases, leading to obstructive shock. And at the point where a patient goes into systemic shock, the PE is now referred to as a massive pulmonary embolism. Cardiac arrest often follows shortly afterwards, when the pressure in the right heart increases so much that it eliminates the pressure gradient between the systemic venous circulation and the right atrium. Because without a pressure gradient, blood is no longer driven towards the right atrium, and the preload to the right heart drops to zero. Now, to wrap this up with something a little bit different, while most patients present with acute PEs, maybe 1-5% to go on to develop chronic thromboses in their pulmonary circulation. Oftentimes, these patients have an underlying hypercoagulable state, like a malignancy or a genetic thrombotic disorder. These patients' clinical course is often more indolent, and they tend to present with chronic progressive right heart failure. Part 4. How do we diagnose pulmonary embolism? Like I mentioned, the most common abnormal vital sign in patients with a PE is tachycardia, caused by the left heart's attempt to compensate for the decreased preload. A patient may be hypoxemic or tachypnic, but for these to occur, a PE generally needs to be pretty substantial. Long auscultation is usually normal, and hypoxemia or respiratory distress that occurs in the context of a normal lung exam should prompt suspicion for a PE. On the other end of the spectrum, a patient with a massive pulmonary embolism can present with shock or even cardiac arrest upon arrival. Remember, PEs are one of the 12 H's and T's on the ACLS differential diagnosis of cardiac arrest, and you should always consider the possibility of a PE when a patient presents with undifferentiated shock. Now, the gold standard diagnostic test for a pulmonary embolism is a CT pulmonary angiogram. It's a CT of the chest that involves injection of contrast dye at high pressure. The scan is timed to obtain high-resolution images while the contrast dye is anticipated to be filling the pulmonary arterial circulation. The lumen of the pulmonary artery and all of their segmental branches should be completely illuminated and appear super bright white all the way to the distal branches because of the contrast. A pulmonary embolus, however, will appear as a dark gray defect in the lumen of the pulmonary arterial branch, and if the PE completely occludes the artery, the arterial branches distal to the occlusion will abruptly darken to the color of tissue. Complete occlusions are often accompanied by visible evidence of pulmonary infarction, consolidations of the lung that look a bit like pneumonia, except that it follows a characteristic wedge-shaped pattern that begins at the occlusion, then fans out all the way to the pleura. 
but not all patients with chest pain or dyspnea warrant a full PE evaluation. Because PEs have such a wide range of presenting symptoms, the specific diagnostic workup indicated varies based on the pretest probability of a pulmonary embolism. Risk stratification tools help quantify a patient's PE risk and the need for further testing. The WELL score is one of the best-known tools to estimate the chance of a patient having a PE, and a total score of 4 or less suggests that the pretest probability of a PE is pretty low, less than 3%. Hemoptysis, or a known history of active malignancy, earn you 1 point each, but you get 1.5 points for tachycardia, a history of immobilization or surgery within the past month, or a history of a prior DVT or PE. The two most important criteria, earning three points each, are if the patient has signs or symptoms of a DVT, like leg swelling or calf pain, or if PE is one of the most likely diagnoses on your differential. This last criterion is the most subjective, and therefore the most problematic for the inexperienced clinician, but it's helpful in that it allows your clinical judgment to factor into the decision-making rule. If the well score is greater than 4, a CT pulmonary angiogram is indicated to evaluate for a PE. However, because PEs are potentially life-threatening, many clinicians consider 3% risk of pulmonary embolism too high to consider the WELLS score of 4 or less sufficient to rule out pulmonary embolism. In these cases, a serum D-dimer is used as a high-sensitivity screening test to determine whether or not the CT pulmonary angiogram is indicated. The breakdown of fibrin contained within a thrombus produces circulating proteins called D-dimers. Now, a D-dimer test is extremely sensitive, so a low D-dimer value can essentially rule out pulmonary embolism. A low D-dimer means that there's no need to proceed with a CT pulmonary angiogram. But a D-dimer test is very nonspecific. A whole range of conditions can cause elevations in D-dimer besides PE, and the D-dimers also tend to naturally rise with age, even in normal patients. This has two important clinical implications. First, that an elevated D-dimer needs to be followed up with a CT pulmonary angiogram to determine whether or not the patient actually has a PE. Second, since the D-dimer test is highly nonspecific, ordering a D-dimer on every patient with chest pain or dyspnea will give you a lot of false negatives. That means you'll be scanning a ton of people who don't have PEs, and remember, CT scans aren't without risk either. So for patients who have a low risk of PE, in other words, those with a WELLS score less than 4, there's another score known as the PERC rule for PE rule-out criteria. First of all, the patient cannot meet any of the WELLS criteria, excluding malignancy for some reason. The patient can't present with tachycardia or hemoptysis, cannot have unilateral leg swelling, one of the most common signs of DVT, and cannot have a history of DVT, PE, or recent trauma or surgery within the last month. In addition, the patient cannot be hypoxic or taking exogenous estrogen, like mixed oral contraceptives. The PERC rule stipulates that if these conditions are met, the patient doesn't even need to be screened with a D-dimer level for you to be sure that PE is a highly unlikely diagnosis. Other tests are frequently ordered in the workup of chest pain or dyspnea, and some of these can be helpful in assessing either the pretest probability or the clinical impact of a pulmonary embolism. The electrocardiogram is most commonly ordered, and it's usually nonspecifically abnormal in PE. Usually, the patient will have sinus tachycardia and or nonspecific T-wave abnormalities. 
Right axis deviation, or ST depressions and T wave inversions in the inferior leads, can indicate right ventricular hypertrophy and strain. Now, this is not at all sensitive or specific for a PE, but it can increase your clinical suspicion enough to push you towards ordering the CT. Additionally, once you've diagnosed a patient with a PE, noticing evidence of right heart strain on the EKG is concerning for a submassive pulmonary embolism. And these patients warrant more intensive observation and therapy since their clot burden is significant enough to have significant hemodynamic impact. Similarly, BNP and troponin, which are also frequently ordered for chest pain and dyspnea workups, are frequently elevated in the context of acute right heart failure and can also indicate submassive pulmonary embolism. But the EKG, BNP, and troponin are not as specific for right heart strain as the echocardiogram, which is the gold standard for diagnosing right heart strain. The echo should show right ventricular dilation and abnormal bowing of the septum towards the left ventricle. All of these studies, just to be clear, will be abnormal in massive as well as submassive PEs. But remember, the hallmark of a massive PE is obstructive shock, and that should be obvious even without diagnostic testing. So we've talked a lot about the CT pulmonary angiogram, but there are certain patients who may not be able to have a CTPA for one reason or another, like those with severe iodine allergies. In these patients, ventilation perfusion, or VQ scanning, may be used. This is a type of radionuclide scan in which the lungs are scanned after an isotope is injected into the blood to evaluate for lung perfusion, and separately after an isotope is inhaled to evaluate for lung ventilation. Comparing the scans allows a spatial comparison of ventilation versus perfusion, and a regional VQ mismatch with normal ventilation but an abnormally low perfusion suggests a PE. Unfortunately, most patients have indeterminate VQ scan results, limiting its usefulness compared to CT angiography, so the risks of the study always have to be compared to the potential risk of failing to diagnose and treat a PE. Part 5. How do we treat pulmonary embolism? Once a PE is diagnosed, the management depends on whether the patient is stable or unstable, as well as on their mortality risk. The mainstay of treatment for a hemodynamically stable patient without right heart strain is anticoagulation. Typically, enoxaparin is used for patients admitted for PE, but a heparin drip can be used if a patient has kidney failure or would benefit from anticoagulation that can be quickly stopped. Warfarin should not be used alone in initial management because of the delay in reduction of vitamin K-dependent clotting factors and anticoagulant activity. Initial anticoagulation is usually followed by 3 to 12 months of outpatient anticoagulation. Now, historically, all patients with pulmonary embolism were admitted for observation and heparin or anoxaparin administration while transitioning them to warfarin for outpatient anticoagulation. However, with the advent of novel oral anticoagulants, patients with stable vital signs, a low risk of bleeding, normal kidney function, and no evidence of right heart strain can frequently be discharged after initiation of an oral anticoagulant, since these don't have the same problems with delay of action like warfarin does. These patients are typically prescribed factor 10A inhibitors like apixaban or rivaroxaban. If a patient with a PE cannot be anticoagulated due to a high risk of bleeding, or if they continue to get blood clots despite anticoagulation, an inferior vena cava, or IVC filter, can be placed through a central venous catheter. A net-shaped filter is placed in the inferior vena cava that can theoretically block large clots from embolizing from the lower extremities. 
The efficacy isn't as good as anticoagulation, however, so this again is a risk-benefit trade-off. So that's how you treat hemodynamically stable patients. Now let's move on to the unstable patients. If a patient has any evidence of right heart strain or shock, i.e. submassive or massive PE, well, then immediate outpatient anticoagulation is off the table. These patients need to be admitted for observation and inpatient anticoagulation at the very least. Furthermore, if you have sufficient clinical suspicion of a PE, begin anticoagulating the patient even before the diagnosis is confirmed with a CT, because time may be of the essence. Regarding basic resuscitative measures, ensure adequate oxygenation with oxygen supplementation as needed, but be very careful about positive pressure ventilation and fluid administration. Remember, the reason these patients go into shock is right heart failure, and they have a very narrow range of preload that they can tolerate. Positive pressure ventilation will decrease preload to the right heart, which may be depending on preload to move blood past the PE. But overzealous fluid administration may end up overtaxing a right ventricle that's already stretched to the limits of its capacity. Ultimately, vasopressor or inotrope drugs may be required if your patient is going into shock. Massive pulmonary emboli and even some submassive pulmonary emboli are treated with IV fibrinolytic drugs like a tissue plasminogen activator, or TPA. Unlike anticoagulants, which typically work slowly, fibrinolytics directly dissolve the clot, though the risk of life-threatening bleeding is correspondingly greater. If the clot is large and proximal enough, an interventional radiologist can either perform an embolectomy, removing the clot through a catheter, or administer concentrated fibrinolytics directly adjacent to the embolus itself, allowing a much lower dose to be effectively used. The decision to perform fibrinolysis, catheter-directed lysis, or embolectomy isn't a simple formulaic one and often requires multidisciplinary input and careful consideration of the patient's risk factors. If untreated, the mortality from a PE approaches 30%, but because of the improving diagnostic and treatment techniques, overall PE-related mortality is fortunately declining. And that's a wrap. Let's see what knowledge we managed to embolize from this podcast to your brain. First, can you identify the risk factors for pulmonary embolism? Most pulmonary emboli originate from thrombi in the deep veins of the lower extremities, so the risk factors are much the same. Sluggish blood flow in the veins of the lower extremities, hypercoagulability, and venous endothelial damage. Second, can you identify some of the common symptoms of pulmonary embolism? PEs most commonly present with chest pain and dyspnea. Larger and more proximal PEs, however, are less likely to present with chest pain and may instead cause syncope, presyncope, right heart failure, and obstructive shock. Third, can you recall the gold standard diagnostic test for pulmonary embolism? The gold standard diagnostic test is the CT pulmonary angiogram. To prevent overuse of radiographic imaging, however, clinical scores like the Wells criteria and PERC rule are used, along with the D-dimer as a screening lab test. Finally, can you name three main treatment strategies for patients with pulmonary embolism?
The mainstay of treatment is anticoagulation, either immediate outpatient anticoagulation for stable patients or inpatient anticoagulation for less stable patients. Patients with massive and occasionally submassive PEs often require fibrinolysis. Catheter-directed interventions like catheter-directed fibrinolysis and embolectomy can be performed if a patient has a large and proximal pulmonary embolus. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to that patient from the beginning of the episode. A 68-year-old female develops chest pain and dyspnea four days status post-surgical fixation of the left proximal femur, and vitals reveal tachycardia, tachypnea, and low normoxia. What do you suspect has happened to your patient, and what interventions do you need to perform? While you originally suspected that the patient's leg swelling was normal, given her recent trauma and surgery, you now realize that a deep venous thrombosis could be contributing to its appearance. Given the acuity of her symptoms while hospitalized and her normal lung sounds, you strongly suspect a pulmonary embolism as your primary diagnosis. An EKG reveals evidence of right heart strain, and you become concerned that the patient may actually have a submassive pulmonary embolism. Your nurses administer oxygen, and you tell them to run the fluid slowly. Given the likelihood of a pulmonary embolism, potential signs of DVT, tachycardia, and recent immobilization, the patient has a Wells score of 9, putting her at high risk for pulmonary embolism. You order a CT angiogram of the chest, but given your strong suspicion and the evidence of right heart strain, you've already started a heparin drip long before the radiologist calls to confirm that the patient does indeed have a large pulmonary embolus in the right main pulmonary artery. You call the ICU to request that the patient be upgraded for a higher level of care. I'm concerned that the patient has right heart strain, you tell the intensivist, but you'll need an echo to confirm that. She's had surgery so recently that she's not a candidate for TPA, but fortunately, the PE's in the right main pulmonary artery. If the echo confirms right heart strain, I'd consider calling interventional radiology to see what they can do about the clot. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full BRICS experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends. <laughs>